0: In a darkened cave deep underground, Michel contemplates taking his life. It has been 77 days and the panic is now demobilizing. As he stares into nothing but blackness, he thinks about his parents. If he dies, surely they'll have to pay the debt he's incurred just to finance this expedition. He can't do that to them. It gives him a reason to keep going and then he remembers why he's come to live in this cave. He's come for science. He's come for answers. In February 1972, Michel Sif traveled to the Midnight Cave in Del Rio, Texas. Midnight is a fitting title, given he came to see how humans live, as he put it, beyond time. He was a geologist by training, and Michel first became enamored with human perception of time after spending 15 days underground studying a glacier. Imagine that. 15 days to understand what took 30,000 years to develop. It's literally the slowest moving phenomenon on Earth. And it just wasn't enough. But the idea of living without the constraint of time intrigued him more than the rocks he had been studying in the past, saying,
1: This idea became the idea of my life.
0: And he's lived up to that mantra. To do this, he has committed to living underground in the darkness for six months with no clocks, no calendars, just the basic necessities to sustain life. A fellow researcher put Michel's heroics in context. Seif does what nobody else will do. He has by far the longest records of people in isolation. Others who have studied similar situations have done it for weeks. He has done it for months. That's Michel. He's intrepid to the core, willing to sacrifice his body, mind, and even his finances. The experiment alone will leave him nearly a half million dollars in debt. If the darkness doesn't scare him, surely the IRS doesn't stand a chance. So, Michel enters the Midnight Cave with optimism. Even Brio, everything in his life has prepared him for this event. He carries down a tent, a rickety chair miserable freezer food, and some scientific equipment. Oh, and he also has to drag 780 gallons of water. But Michel isn't prepared for the dangers that await him. And it has nothing to do with what loomed in the darkness. Welcome to Microbehaviors, a different kind of podcast that uses stories from the past to help you apply the latest behavioral research. Each episode helps you learn, ask, do. First, you'll learn cutting-edge psychology in a captivating way. Next, you'll ask reflective questions to make this information personal to you. And finally, you'll do One single microbehavior, a small action that's triggered by the daily situations you face. It's time to take the best behavioral research out of the lab and into your life, so you flourish at home, work, and in your relationships. I'm Andrew Webb. This is Microbehaviors. Let's get to it. In the early days at the Midnight Cave, things go well. Every day when Michel wakes up, he reaches for his phone. He has to communicate with the team up top to report on his status. And then, if he's feeling spicy, some playtime. Target practice with a pellet gun. When you read his journals from the earlier days, Michel is brimming with positivity. But that confidence is short-lived. Mildew is spreading fast in the cave, and it grows on his books, over his electric equipment, and everything changes the moment he loses his one true pleasure, his record player. At this point, Michel becomes lost to himself. His sleeping pattern becomes so erratic that he spends as much as 40 hours in bed. By day 77, not even halfway through the experiment... Michel loses the feeling in his hands. And then, his short-term memory starts to slip, until eventually it feels downright broken. I recall nothing from yesterday.
1: Even events of this morning are lost. If I do not write things down immediately, I forget them.
0: At one point, Michel considers breaking his own legs. Everyone will think it's an accident, but then... He feels that might be cheating his way out of the cave, and Michel, he's anything but a cheater. He becomes so lonely, so desperate for stimulation, for socialization. Eventually, a bright spot scrambles by, and it's in the form of a tiny white mouse. It's the only acceptable living companion down here. That is if you don't count the bats that are continually dropping guano in his food. He names his friend Mus, and he leaves a small taste of jam under a casserole dish as a trap. He waits for hours. Or is it minutes? He's incapable of knowing.
1: My patience prevails. After much hesitation, Mus edges up to the jam. I admire his little shining eyes, his sleek coat. I slam down the dish. He is captured. At last, I will have a companion in my solitude. My heart pounds with excitement.
0: Such hope. Another life that breathes the same dank air. Another being that can perhaps relate to the hell they both share. This unlikely duo is a testament to the enduring need for sociality. Relationships don't merely supplement our purpose. They provide it. But relationships? They're not meant for the midnight cave. Carefully,
1: I inch up to the casserole dish. I hear small squeaks of distress. Moss lies on his side. The edge of the descending dish apparently cut him on the head. I stare at him with swelling grief. The whispers die away. He is still.
0: Desolation overwhelms me." Moss's death isn't the last catastrophe either. You see, Michel's daily vital signs are measured by a rectal thermometer. And, as if to put an exclamation on technology's dominance, a distant lightning bolt somehow charges the wires, sending excruciating shocks into his body. But he is so removed from reality. It takes three more jolts before he even considers removing the wires. By this point, Michel resents the phone he's supposed to use each day. It represents a world he can no longer access, one filled with unreachable pleasures and joy, and his daily reports of the dead mice, electric shocks, and memory loss feel all the more grim, especially compared to the utopian life he's sure that everybody else is living on the surface.
1: I am living through the nadir of my life. Two ideas obsess me. I am wasting my life in this stupid research... I must get out of the Midnight Cave now. My mind has temporarily collapsed.
0: On August 10th, Michel gets the call. The experiment is over. Six months in darkness. But how can that be, he wonders. His reality has become so skewed, he's absolutely certain they've called him out a month too soon.
1: After days of numbing cold constant dampness and almost unbearable stress, I emerge as a half-crazed disjointed marionette.
0: The experiment itself will become a catalyst for biologists, medical researchers, and even NASA. They're interested in learning how isolation might affect their own astronauts. But if I can be honest, I don't think Michel's experiment is about chronobiology or even time perception. You see, what Michel was doing was detaching himself, not only from the construct of time, but the very foundations, the connections and purposes of everyday life. And if you peel back the layers of his self-inflicted laboratory, you'll find something that others have missed. Michel was both a product and a victim of the technology he relied on. He needed it to fill his deepest desires, to stimulate his mind and create social connection. He even relied on it to keep him alive, but it also cursed him. His phone became an essential tool to communicate with the surface, yes, but it suddenly felt more like a burden. And it highlighted all that he could not have, all the intimate connections he was not making. And his record player? It was a constant distraction from the darkness around him. His mind relied on that stimulation. It craved it. And once it was gone, Michelle was gone too. Sound familiar? In today's episode, we'll explore our complex relationship with technology, specifically our digital devices like our phones and computers. We'll learn why the doomsayers aren't doing you any good and how you can take ownership of these tools with simple microbehaviors so you ensure you aren't just surviving you're flourishing, that you come out of the digital cave into the light, benefiting from technology, not feeling beholden to it. Unfortunately, this dependence has often turned into unhealthy behaviors, even addictions, but we're still not taking this sickness seriously.
2: We, we go to the doctor to check out our physical health, we go to a, a counselor to look at our, our mental or emotional health, but where do we go? to explore our digital health that actually impacts all those other types of health. And for me, this is a brand new emerging field.
0: This is Amy Blankson, one of the world's best experts on digital wellness. And if there was ever a doctor for digital health, it's Amy. You see, what I love most about her approach to technology is not her wealth of knowledge. Believe me, she has that. No, what is so powerful about her approach is that she is so positive about its value in our everyday
2: life. Our capacity and our potential in life is not fixed at birth like we once thought, but that we all have the capacity to grow and to improve upon what we are currently learning and understanding about the world and also how we approach life. And so I, I was empowered by that idea of growth mindset and really wanted to apply it to thinking about technology.
0: Years ago, Amy was approached by her brother Sean Acor, who has one of the highest views in TED Talk history. His course at Harvard was one of the world's first on the science of happiness. Of course, nobody really knew if the course would be successful. After all, positive psychology was in its infancy. But over 400 students signed up and all of a sudden corporations and the media, they were hearing the buzz. Sean needed Amy's help, and suddenly she's on the circuit teaching the biggest companies non-stop in over 50 different countries. But with time, Amy notices a shift as she engages with the audience. Their pursuit for happiness seemed constantly threatened by a new dominant trend.
2: What I heard from individuals was this sense of overwhelm with the world of technology moving so fast that they couldn't keep up or they felt like there was so many things going on in technology that were negative. And that was exacerbated by messages that were emerging in the media saying that social media was destroying the fabric of our society, or screens were like digital heroin, or there was just this palpable sense of negativity that was very sensationalized by the media. And Mind you, some of those, those headlines and the stories were actually not even based in research or fact.
0: Amy is not wrong, and there's a big reason why. The short answer is that the brain's threat center is constantly vigilant. It's searching for danger, and it responds faster to threats, even the symbolic ones. So emotionally loaded words like addiction, crisis, overload. They get the fast track. Call it the cynic's privilege. And any positive media around technology's value is easily overshadowed by the nasty stuff. You could say our brains are in an abusive relationship, promising that the fear, it it doesn't really mean to hurt us and that it was probably our fault anyway. Let me just say, if you want to learn more about our brains' response to fear, check out our other episode, Managing Stress and Fear, The Courageous Actor. It's a serious, looming issue and it needs more attention. Heck, Daniel Kahneman of Thinking Fast and Slow Fame, he showed us that the image of an angry face gets processed far faster than a happy one. Which is probably why Amy's book has plastered right on front a big, happy, yellow, smiley face. It's called The Future of Happiness five modern strategies for balancing productivity and well-being in the digital era.
2: What I've seen happening is that individuals hear these messages about how their attention is being hacked by digital companies, and then they feel like victims. And when we get into victim mode, we feel like there's nothing we can do about it. And so, it becomes either paralyzing or fuels further negativity. And what we know from the research of positive psychology is just how important it is to lean into a sense of efficacy. What is our, our human agency to do something about this? And the truth is that we have a lot we can do about it.
0: And that is what Amy helps people to do better than anybody else.
2: So if I'm talking to audiences about the workplace, one of the very first strategies that I recommend is actually, um, number one, keeping devices out of meetings. What typically happens in meetings is everyone will bring their laptop to a meeting and they'll be multitasking while a speaker is talking. Not only does that make a a speaker not feel great that they're paying attention, but it also decreases their overall productivity. They think that they're doing a wonderful job of multitasking.
0: This isn't just about making others feel good, though. Navigating from a screen to a live environment taxes your brain far more than you can consciously perceive. Say you get a text or a Slack message in a meeting. Amy says it takes about 2.2 seconds to read the text. But if you decide to respond, it triples your rate of error on cognitive tasks. Which means, more likely than not, you are missing essential information because you've willingly incapacitated yourself. Scientists love to call this switching costs, and they're the number one reason multitasking is a man-made myth. This navigation goes on all the time on the web, too. If you're like me, you have endless browser tabs stacked up at the top, and each with a ready-made batch of hyperlinks. It just feels good clicking on new ones, even though they're probably less essential. But sometimes we just have to have the device with us, and that's okay, too. If you get an essential message, by all means, answer to the dang thing.
2: I also encourage individuals to... If they are going to bring a device into a meeting, um, that they dictate to other members on their team if they take a moment to step aside to look at a text message. So if you're going to pull out your phone in a meeting, that the rule would then be that you tell everyone what you're doing on your device that's so important.
0: I love this. And honestly, it's a great microbehavior Amy and I discussed years ago. It's been a huge blessing for me in my meetings, but more importantly, with my family When you willingly engage with a message on your phone, then be courteous by announcing your intention. Oh, hey, I just have to respond to this person's text about tomorrow's start time. It should take a few seconds. This has two major implications. First, you're holding yourself accountable by including others in your digital activity. They're aware, you're aware, the rules are clear. And second, the moment you start on another alluring activity, say scrolling through Facebook, you're going to feel their eyes on you. You've moved on from a commitment you've made and most of us just have too much integrity to dismiss it. But it's important to put our modern day experience into perspective because new technologies have been bubbling up in our history for centuries and our response in the past can give us the long view. It can provide behavioral solutions to the trends We think only our generation understands. In 1812, newer machinery in England had dramatically improved the textile outputs. It was a potential boon for the economy, but not for the skilled workers who were being displaced, the ones who worked hard to develop their craft. And now, with these newer machines, they were becoming obsolete. And somewhere in this turmoil, a secret band formed, so secretive that historians aren't even sure if their leader really existed. It's reported that their leader, General Ludd, was the first to revolt after receiving a hearty beating from his boss. But this secrecy has only added to their stature, especially in areas like Nottingham, a place known for its mythological heroes. Can't no more your old
2: rhymes about bold Robin Hood. His feats I but little admire. I will sing the achievements of General Ludd, now the hero of
0: Nottinghamshire. Members were administered oaths of silence, or as they called it, twisted in. And their role was to disrupt those factories that just would not guarantee them jobs. And that meant violent night raids or smashing machines with sledgehammers. And especially fostering fear in the press. Luddite letters became the salacious water cooler talk that kept the country on edge. You see, they didn't really fear technology like we assume today. But they did create fear in the public. Take a published letter to the Home Office Secretary.
2: Every frame-breaking act you make only serves to shorten your days. You have been a great deal of pain. It is now your turn to fall. The remedy for you is short destruction without detection. Prepare for thy departure and recommend the same to thy friends. Your humble servants, the Luddites.
0: That's an interesting word, isn't it? Luddite. Today, it's a term we use to describe anyone who's fearful of technology or that purposely avoids it. And even more interesting is the term's usage through time. As if it is a litmus test that indicates our social angst, I did some digging using Google's algorithm on specific terms over a period of five centuries and in eight different languages. Luddite became a rallying cry in literature about 1814, just as the movement began. And then we saw it again as the steam locomotive was, well, picking up steam. We saw it jump once again in 1876, precisely when the telephone was invented. And the trend continues through all the major technologies. The radio, TV, internet, even the dot-com bubble. A new major technology disrupts everyday living, and boom, the term Luddite spikes in our literature. But the trend is also clear. The term spikes, and then, with time, it levels out. It's perhaps an indication of our ability to find homeostasis to achieve that which just makes us so distinct from other species. The ability to make use of tools for our advantage. But in the last 30 years, the term's usage is exponential, with no sign of dropping. No sign of homeostasis to come, as if it is on the tip of every tongue and typed on every screen, it's a word that symbolizes fear and uncertainty, and we're still searching for equilibrium, like we did with steam, textiles, or the phone. Each new technology fostered a public reaction of fear, until the public learned how to adjust, Take, for example, a standard technology we're all using, but one that was never supposed to exist, especially because it was discovered by accident. Percy Spencer's father died when he was just 18 months old. The burden was just too much for his mother, and so she left him orphaned. Twice, actually. But Spencer was naturally bright. He had an incessant itch to know, which was why he signed up to install electricity in the local mill. There was just one problem. He had absolutely no idea how to do it. But that never stopped Percy from learning. Eventually, he ended up at the Raytheon Company, where, one engineer marveled, he earned the respect of every physicist in the country, not only for his ingenuity, but for what he had learned about physics by absorbing it through his skin. One day Spencer was working on a magnetron project, which projected electromagnetic waves. Suddenly Spencer felt the peanut cluster in his pocket melt. He called it a gooey, sticky mess. Now, it's common to hear the story that he was carrying a chocolate bar. He wasn't. This peanut bar was a staple for him. He used it to feed the chipmunks and squirrels when taking a break from the lab. Spencer's grandson tells it this way. Put two and two together and he decided to get some popcorn kernels. So he sent the popcorn in and it started popping all over the place. The next morning he brought in an egg. One of the engineers who was a little disbelieving in terms of the machine's ability to cook. Just as he was looking over, the egg blew up in his face. The microwave was born.
2: The microwave oven is an appliance whose time has come. Be it snacks or dinner, you're going to get the job done in up to 75% less time. This ham casserole might take up to 45 minutes in a conventional oven. With microwave cooking, the dish is ready in just 15 minutes, 67% less time. The original patent
0: was filed in October of 1945. It was labeled as a method of treating foodstuffs. Now that doesn't sound very sexy. After all, the first model cost $5,000 and was nearly six feet tall, but the demand was there. And ever since the first countertop model sold in the 50s, it has become a standard appliance for everyday use. And for years, this trend has increased, even at a meteoric rate. Today, almost 95% of all households have a usable microwave. But something has shifted in the last 10 years. For the first time ever, sales have dropped dramatically. Every year, in fact, since the year 2000, the numbers are down 25%. Frozen dinner sales have dropped too. Americans' evolving perceptions have shifted their behavior. It seems we've gotten wise that microwaved eggs really do taste like melted leather, even if it is, and what did it say? 75 percent faster? We've become experts at identifying the artificial. One bigwig at the Food Tech and Innovation Forum a few years ago summed up this shift. But as you listen to him, think about what he's saying. This is important. It's a reflective moment to perhaps ask how this applies not only to microwaves, but potentially all of our technology, including our phones, our computers. I think the drop-off in microwave sales is indicative of a big shift in consumer preferences that many aren't completely aware of yet. That convenience alone isn't enough. Since technology has advanced so much, people now have the choice to choose things that balance convenience with experience. The opportunity to consider the entire experience meaning evaluate what technology is really doing to all parts of our lives, where it's especially helpful, and where, if we're being really honest, it may be doing more damage. So let me ask you, why is it so hard for us to do the same thing with our phones, the internet, social media?
2: When you go onto Instagram, you're scrolling, um, and then you get a pop-up ad for YouTube, so you switch over to YouTube, and that leads you to Pinterest. There's this constant, um, this uh, this idea within the persuasive tech design movement of what's called the bottomless bull. So the bottomless bull was a strategy designed to keep people online for longer. So rather than having a defined set of content when you go on Instagram, it's now defined in such a way that you will never run out of content. You can scroll forever.
0: It's just like going to a bottomless buffet with an insatiable hunger. We engorge ourselves on content because that is how the experience has been designed, to keep our attention by scattering it. And each new post or filtered photo, each new like or link, it sends back positive chemicals. But be careful, these are only pseudo-rewards. The thing about dopamine is it's different from our other happy neurotransmitters, like, say, serotonin or endorphins. Dopamine is rewarding you for things you want. It lights up for even the potential of pleasure, the anticipation of something good to come. And it makes you endlessly curious, seeking more and more and then more. It's a loop of always seeking and very often never satisfying. Amy has also seen a trend that should be pretty alarming but easily remedied.
2: It's called it, the third strategy I have is actually based on something called the Mere Presence Study, which says that the mere presence of devices in our line of sight when we're trying to work or connect with others actually can decrease our focus and flow by up to 10% because our brains are constantly anticipating that we might be needed. So whether or not you are actually receiving a message, if you're constantly checking, thinking that you might get a message, that gives you this sense of a dopamine hit that feels good because we like to be needed And so all of a sudden, you are kind of getting this positive reinforcement for checking your phone, even though there's no message there.
0: Checking your phones even when there isn't a trigger is what I call a ghost behavior. The habits feel instinctual, and we only vaguely recognize we're even doing it. But these specific behaviors haunt us because they don't provide real value. It's perfunctory performance. Of all of Amy's recommendations, this one seems the most important, And it's downright aggravating because it's so simple. Hide your device. Put it away. Keep it out of sight so that these ghost behaviors can't haunt you. Those addictive habits just to check your slack, a text, or your email. Put it in your backpack or purse and turn off the ringtones. Just because you have the agency to answer doesn't mean you're obligated to do so. Each decision to engage with the device, it requires a cognitive tax that just grows into... An unsustainable rate. After we spoke, I tried it when I went to the store. I remember putting my car in park and instinctively grabbing my phone. Why? I didn't have a grocery list on there. I wasn't expecting an important call. I just needed the comfort of that black slab of technology in my pocket. But I was strong, at least in this moment, and I separated myself from my constant companion, and it felt like an emotional breakup, to be honest. And there was a moment of withdrawal as I was walking through the doors and I grabbed the card. I thought, had I made a mistake? Should I go grab my phone? But then something interesting happened. When I was shopping, I was present, focused, settled. And the moment, it was enough for me. I actually read a few labels to see if the food was right. That doesn't seem like a lot, I know, but in the aggregate, if I could have this experience in a store, what other important conversations or connections was I missing? Often enough, the mere presence of the tool isn't about communicating. Not really. It's about our perceived self-importance. That the world needs you at all times. You're Batman, and the bat signal in the sky never goes out. Not in your mind, at least. Even Batman can't keep up with that kind of pressure. And neither should you. As Nicholas Carr states in his brilliant and I really mean brilliant book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brain, there are two schools of thought. And it comes down to how we view our intimate relationships with our digital devices. One camp is called determinists, and the other are instrumentalists. But first, let's talk about these determinists. They believe that the tools we design are the force that influences all of human progress. Karl Marx, he saw it this way too, calling machines, locomotives, railways, and telegraphs the objectified power of knowledge. Now, this progress is out of man's control. We're helpless to the inevitable rise and eventual domination of technology. Just like Michelle in the cave, we are helpless marionettes moved by the strings of technology. Sound hyperbolic? Consider that given what we've learned about the brain's ability to change, as plastic, something continually molding due to our different experiences, you'd be hard-pressed to find another medium that can alter our neural architecture more rapidly than the phone and the internet. If there was a soundtrack for the technological revolution, it would be 158 Marimba, a name you might not recognize, but it's a sound you surely will. Kelly Jacklin... The designer of the sound admits, and I'm quoting, I was looking for something simple that would grab the user's attention. I thought a simple sequence of notes played with a clean-sounding instrument would cut through the clutter of noise in a home or office. You see, too often software designers and inventors, they just aren't concerned with the social impact of their work, especially when they're spending endless hours coding. No, they're just trying to answer a specific problem answering what is the practical advantage of this button for social media, or how can we make this picture look better. Each experience has been designed to make learning the tool easier, more intuitive, we say. But this also means altering our brain's neural connections, too. Each finger swipe lights up the somatosensory network. The eyes are inundated with well-crafted buttons. Each color, position, size, and font tested to pull your attention away. The ears hear seductive sirens in the form of pings, rings, and dings. My goodness, just think about how good it feels to pay with something through Apple Pay. The sound mixed with a subtle pulse, not to mention the added anticipation of something purchased. It's an addictive elixir, to be sure. And each one of these experiences change your brain. The very first study to prove this asked 24 recruits to scan their brains while using Google. One set was deeply experienced on the web, and they showed a vastly superior section in the prefrontal section of the brain, the area that's mostly responsible for your executive functions. Now, they'd learned how to craft better search entries. The researchers then asked the other group, the novice group, to spend an hour a day for six days using Google. After six days, just six, they showed the exact same neural circuitry as the experienced group. The lead researcher was astounded, and he asked a poignant question, one that determinists would gobble up. If our brains are so sensitive to just an hour a day of computer exposure, what happens when we spend even more time online? That's an essential question, and it's one worth reflecting on. How? How has your repeated use of the internet influenced the way you think? How has it helped? Where has it hurt? While recently discussing this research with my brother at lunch the other day, I saw his eyes light up. It was like he found an answer he just didn't know he needed. You see, John is in the dating stage of life, and I I don't envy him. Because it's become a commitment of seconds, not seasons. New apps make it so easy to assess a potential mate by a photoshopped image and just as quickly swipe them away you discount their humanity. It's a vending machine for courtship. And even if you do commit to D4, the Twix, you can't help but thinking if you should have gone with E7, the Almond Joy. I know, I know. Nobody really likes Almond Joys. But John noticed this pattern of thinking not only when they were on the app, but when they were on the dates. They're thinking if they need to swipe while sitting across from him. Now, how does he know that they're doing it? Because he's doing it to them. A lot of times it's just when you're bored. So I had it for about six months, and whenever I was bored, or and you just swipe through. If you think a girl's cute, you swipe right. If you think she's not attractive, you swipe left. Or up and down, I can't remember. Because after about six months, I was so fed up with it and recognized what it was doing to my brain itself that I just I had to get rid of it. And you think others have done it too? Absolutely. Some of you could be saying, well, maybe he's ugly. Maybe he's a real dud. The almond joy of the dating pool. But let me assure you, he is the handsome one in the family. He always has been. And it just makes me sick. Surely the technology, though, has altered the dating culture, altered their brain's method for making decisions, altered their behaviors that are, as the determinists would say, beyond their control. Even the father of neuroplasticity said it this way. When culture drives changes in the ways that we engage our brains, it creates different brains. Okay, so that's one side of the debate. Determinists are often the ones that stoke fear and hysteria. The other side sees technology different. They're instrumentalists that believe our tools are neutral artifacts. According to Carr, Instrumentalists believe our technology are the means we use to achieve our ends. They have no ends of their own. This is the most widespread belief because the alternative, that our tools are destined to dictate our behaviors, it just feels too ominous. So, if we look at the microwave's history, we'd be quick to say, well, the determinists were right. Just think how family dinner somehow evolved into frozen dinners, and talking time became TV time. Why? It was just so easy, so convenient. The speed of technology trumped quality. It trumped authenticity. But here's the good news. Somehow, we broke through. In the past few years, we started to use the microwave with more intention, using the machine for its best purposes without letting it dominate every meal, which is why the numbers have dropped. But that's not all. If you check the trends, you find a surprising correlation. In this exact same time period, families have reported eating together far more, 12% more to be exact. Think of the impact, the quality of time, the social connection, the learning that can happen as a result of all of those extra hours. Not to mention, kids eat healthier, portions decrease, and values are rediscovered. Not every family has this luxury, of course, and each has special circumstances. But the point is what kind of impact we can have when we give a space and a place for technology to work for us and in the way we want it to. We took stock of the technology, its best uses, and in the process we also took ownership. We were neither determinists, like the Luddites, nor instrumentalists, blind to technology's impact on our future. We were somewhere in between. We became determined instrumentalists, taking responsibility for our own digital agency. It's time to do the same thing with our phones. And it requires a few strategies to maintain positive digital agency. First, parents should be very specific about what Amy calls invisible boundaries. More often than not, family members each have a different perspective on what they think is an appropriate digital habit. Are you going to allow devices at the table? What about morning routines? Do you check your feeds the first thing, even before you say hello to a spouse or child? One potential solution is to write a contract between you and your loved ones. Yes, a written contract is best, one that creates specific boundaries so that everybody is crystal clear. As Carr would state, these technologies, they incubate a new weakness in a number of really important areas, Areas that, if you're really thinking about it, they enrich our lives. They provide meaning. Things like higher order process, mindfulness. It also weakens critical thinking and problem solving. But the area that concerns me the most is how these technologies, they shrivel the parts of the brain that we use to reflect. No doubt you've heard the saying that we learn from our experience, but we don't. We learn from reflecting on our experience. And that rapid-fire stimulus of the net, it weakens our capacity to filter the information we need to give our unique experiences their rightful place in our development. And in that sacred process is where we find purpose in our lives. Is it possible to get real social value on social media? Of course. Or learn about politics on Facebook? You bet. It's just that isn't the experience that these mediums foster, which makes it harder and harder to use the technology for its true purpose. I call this phenomenon information inflation. When the currency of content becomes far less valuable, far less rewarding, it's like bills stuffed under our mattress. Somewhere stashed away we have endless queues in Netflix, or blog posts we've only meant to read. I've explained elsewhere that it would be easy to look around at these conditions and decry the bane of overload to vilify software companies, or even remove technology completely. But focusing on the negative effects misplace our energy. To do so means we feel defeated. We've thrown in the towel in the informational octagon. This mentality magnifies a self-inflicted helplessness. And just like Michelle in the cave, it dismisses our own responsibility in what should be a wonderful journey. Technology and man actually benefiting from each other. And that's precisely what a determined instrumentalist would do, to use our tools with intention rather than feeling used by them. And that means identifying the whole experience. This often is best done in a quiet moment without temptations that haunt us. After talking with Amy, I spent some time reviewing the transcripts and in it, I noticed something I had missed in our call. She mentioned another behavior and it has huge implications. It was so simple, so subtle, and I almost missed it. And it's the one microbehavior you can do today. Are you ready? Here it is. Turn off your notifications. That's it. Turn off your notifications. Turn off Slack or even social media alerts. Those disruptive culprits that just interrupt your daily life and the flow of thought. Now don't worry, you'll still get to them, I promise. Amy told me that it's best to check them in batches. Because when you do, you'll be the one calling the shots. You're the one deciding when you'll engage with that content. You intentionally use the technology, as opposed to letting the technology use you. And often that means throwing you into the mud of multitasking. A microbehavior like this fosters a healthy relationship with your technology. Because after all, there are so many wonderful blessings waiting for us. Consider all the happy couples that dating apps have actually fostered, or perhaps the microwave dinners that saved a working parent from breaking down. Consider the heartfelt connections that social media had actually created for long-lost friends. And if you're a modern Luddite, consider the clothes you're wearing, expertly spun by incredible machines.
2: Fear is a, a very powerful motivator for creating change, but I do believe that hope is a better one that there's hope that we can do things in our own life to make positive changes. There's hope that technology will continue to evolve in a way that values human connection more. There's hope that we as a society can navigate the digital future in a way that creates positive boundaries for all of us to collaborate and work together and live together in a better way. And I come to that honestly through the research of positive psychology, but I want people to walk away from listening to this knowing that Absolutely, there are changes that you can make that can lead to a better future for you. It's just about the choices that we make in our daily lives today. The choices we make now are what shape the future of happiness.
0: We've learned the science, the stories, the research today. Now, if you're going to design a happy digital future, it starts with incremental actions that give us the power to do so. And it can begin now. Hey listeners, be sure to visit MyMicroBehaviors.com, where you can get exclusive content for this episode. You can get notes for the research, primary source documents, and even more microbehaviors. A special thanks to David Evanoff Studios and Jacob Watson for sound engineering. And also, a big thank you to all of my different editors.